My name is Scott Sheffield, and I'm pastor of Adult Discipleship. And if you've been thinking, uh, should I go have the elders pray for me during this James 5 thing, now is still a good time to go. So don't feel at all embarrassed about getting up and leaving for that. Well, today's amazing story is about being lost and being found. And this story is at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, if you want to turn there while I set the scene for this. Ernest Hemingway once wrote a short story called The Capital of the World. And in it, he wrote about a father and his teenage son named Pablo. I'm sorry, Paco. And they had had an argument. The, the son had said some things that he regretted, and in his shame, he decided that the best thing for him to do was to run away from home. And his father uh, searched for him everywhere, all over Spain, and he ended up in Madrid. And in a last-ditch attempt to find his son and to reconcile with him, he wrote an advertisement and put this in the local daily newspaper, and it read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. Well, the next day, Tuesday, the father went to the Hotel Montana, and to his surprise, he found 800, uh, well, he found a squadron of police there trying to keep order among 800 young men, all named Paco, (laughs) who had read this advertisement in the paper, and had desired reconciliation with their own father. Think about that. 800 young men, all named Paco, seeking to be reconciled with their father. Well, let me show you a video that shows how we as humans sometime respond to someone being lost. You're rushing to work, running an errand, or simply out for a stroll. But on this busy block, something is out of place. This little boy is all alone. Do you notice? Do you stop? He cries in distress. And yet on this morning, one person after another walks right past him. But this child isn't really in trouble. He's an actor hired by us. And that's an off-duty cop standing watch nearby. This sidewalk is rigged with hidden cameras. We wanted to know, what will people do when a child on the street appears lost? Our seven-year-old boy is stranded for over 20 minutes. Well over a hundred people walk by. We even run out of tape. And still, no one stops to help him. It is just not acceptable to walk past a child like that and do nothing. Ernie Allen, president of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, helped us design our experiment. A young child on the sidewalk of any American city by themselves is vulnerable. They are at risk. In fact, for a parent or caregiver, leaving a child alone on the street could be a crime. For our experiment, we alternate two little boys and two girls. Minutes tick by, and one stranger after another walks by our lost child. For a minute, we think this woman might come to our actress Hallie's aid, but she just digs through her bag and then moves on. This man's dogs seem to notice, but their master doesn't bite. But we wonder, could it be that people just assume that a parent is nearby or that everything is okay because the child is not asking for help? 
Unfortunately, what tends to happen in the real world is exactly what your actors did in this scenario. They don't ask for help. Young children aren't going to ask for help. Even when we tell our children to cry, it hardly makes a difference. People continue on with what they're doing and even step around the child. There were a lot of people around, so I figured his mom was right there nearby. But he was whimpering, he was crying. I just thought he was sulking. What if he had been lost or something really wrong with him? I mean, I feel bad, but, you know, I didn't stop to think that. Was there food in the store? This man, who admits that he would have walked right on by if his wife had not stopped first, says it's not that people don't notice. People just don't know what to do, so after a moment of contemplation, maybe, they're just, you know, I gotta get to work, Uh, somebody else will deal with it. But what if we up the ante and direct our boys to ask for help? Can you help me, please? Surely no one can ignore this. Right? Can you help me? Wrong. This man is completely tuned out. I was distracted because this woman suddenly ran out of McDonald's and screamed her friend, and that kind of distracted me. Uh-huh. Obviously with the headphones too, so I didn't hear the child, I didn't see the child. You didn't even notice him? Not in the least. But what if these passers-by could come down to our child's level and look her or him in the eye? Watch this little boy on the scooter. He spots our actor, A. Allen, right away. And he makes his mother stop. Uh, are you okay? No. Who are you with? Nobody. Sometimes as a parent, you're too busy and rushed. I'm so thankful that my kids did notice and brought it to my attention. Still, if most adults seem oblivious to our lost child... Are you lost? Yes. There are some exceptions from the grown-ups. Who are, who are you with? I'll help you. Don't be afraid of me. I'm going to help. I think it's hard for us to imagine uh, anybody walking past a young child like that. And yet later in that video clip, it says that 1,700 adults walked by and only 147 stopped. That's an appalling 8.7%. But in contrast, God is our perfect heavenly Father, and He will never pass us by. He's actively searching for us. It's not just a passive walking by and finding somebody. He even searches for us when we're not looking for Him. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that while we were still his enemies, God was working on a plan to reconcile us to him. Did you ever experience being lost as a child? I know I did. I imagine most of us have. Uh, Many times it's in a department store or something like that, and and maybe it started out as being something fun like playing hide-and-seek in the rounders of clothes or looking at a toy display. And I think for myself, that probably was, I was looking at a, a big gym display. Anybody remember Big Jim back from the 70s? No, he is not a Barbie and he's not a doll. He is a karate chopping, bicep flexing action hero. I've lost you, haven't I? All right, let's try a different example. 
In 2002, our family moved from California to Pennsylvania, and that summer we decided we were going to go on vacation to Florida to visit with Cindy's sister and her family. And one of those days, we went to SeaWorld in Orlando. So there are four adults and six kids. Those kids are between the ages of approximately 3 and 14. And of course, as you know, what we're doing every time we stop is you're nodding your head. You remember this, don't you? Uh, Counting heads every time we stop to make sure that there were still 10. And at one point during the middle of the day, we had stopped and we're deciding where we're going to go next. I, I think maybe we're going to see the Sea Otter Show And so we go there, and and I'm not sure what happened while we were deciding that, but somehow Chad didn't go with us. And he was not quite seven years old at that point. And so we get to the show and do the head count again and realize there are nine instead of ten, and panic sets in. I mean, we've all heard the stories of how quickly a child can be abducted from a theme park, and their appearance changed, and you don't even realize they're gone, and they're gone. So we left Terry, Cindy's sister, with the other kids, and Cindy and I and our brother-in-law, Tim, went out searching for Chad. And probably not too long into that search, we got the security team involved in looking as well. Uh, maybe about 15, 20 minutes into this, you know, you're, you start out trying to act kind of cool, like, no, I didn't lose my kid. And, but pretty soon, you're yelling his name and not caring what other people think. And I got a phone call on my cell phone saying he's been found. Well, what had happened was uh, somehow when Chad got separated, he knew where we were going. And so he pulls his SeaWorld map out of his pocket and finds out where the Sea Otter Show is, finds out the You Are Here spot, and he goes over to the show. He's sitting in the front row of the show having a great time, probably wondering when his family's going to show up. Well, he didn't realize he was lost, but he was. And I think many times that's how it is with us, is we don't realize that we're lost, but we really are. But because he had his parents and his his uncle and the security team looking for him, it was pretty likely that he was going to be found. And I think with the God of the universe searching for us, it's likely that we're going to be found as well. Well, let me read this amazing story to you from Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. When I read that first line, tax collectors and sinners, it, it, sometimes those, those things can be hard to understand. And I know P- Pastor Mark has talked to us about this, and I just want to help you understand because, you know, for me, um, I'm thinking, well, why not CPAs and sinners? Or 
Why not lawyers and sinners? Oh, wait, that's the same thing, isn't it? (laughs) Good thing Dennis Jones isn't here. Well, remember, in those days, the tax collectors were Jewish citizens who were working for their sworn enemies, the Roman government. And not only were they doing that, but they were taking more money than they were supposed to take for the taxes. So let me give you an example. Let's say um, Gil is the tax collector, and he's collecting taxes from Pastor Mark, and he's supposed to get $100 and take it to the Roman government. Well, the Roman government doesn't care if Gil gets $100 or shakes him down for 1000 Matter of fact, that's how Gil gets paid, is the extra that he gets. And there are Roman soldiers there to make sure that Pastor Mark doesn't beat up Gil. Well, so we've got these, these uh, men and women, or these uh, tax collectors, and sometimes I wonder if there's a better way to understand this. So I was looking up in different translations, paraphrases, and landed on Dr. Eugene Peterson's The Message, and in that he uses the phrase, instead of tax collectors and sinners, he uses the phrase, men and women of doubtful reputation. Now, I like the way that that sounds. It it helps me to understand, but it also kind of makes me smile when I say it. I, I personally don't know any tax collectors, and, well, everybody I know is sinners. I mean, you should see the people I work with. So Jesus is surrounded by these men and women of doubtful reputation. And I think that it's interesting that these social outcasts had a growing trust for Jesus. And I think that that's, uh, we shouldn't just pass that by. I mean, these people that are called the religious leaders were not called that because they loved God more than anybody else. I think they loved themselves more than anybody else. But they should have been the people that were leading others to God. And yet instead, what they've done is they've set themselves up as as the self-righteous. And you've got these two groups of people that don't trust each other. You've got the religious leaders probably in a group standing on one side, pointing at these men and women of doubtful reputation and saying, you're just sinners. And then you've got them pointing back at the religious leaders saying, you're hypocrites. So we've got these hypocritical religious leaders, and they begin muttering that Jesus was no better than the people that he was hanging around with. Now, Dr. Luke says that they were muttering about Jesus, and I like that word muttering. It kind of sounds like what you're describing, muttering. And if you're an English major or an English professor, that's called onomatopoeia, right? Pretty impressed that I picked that up, didn't you? I've also begun to learn that in the world of theater and drama, that that background conversation is called walla. So we've got this going on, these uh, tax collectors and sinners, uh, they're all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are muttering about them. Oh, you know, Jesus, he's, he's meeting with these IRS agents and these lawyers and, and you know, just muttering about them. Now, if you go back to the end of chapter 14, and let me pause there to remind you that when Dr. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he did not write it in chapters and verses. He wrote it as one long narrative. 
So the way that we read it, maybe we're reading this for our devotions and we come to the end of 14 and we say, okay, that's the end of that story. I'll put my Bible away tomorrow. I'll start with chapter 15 and I'll forget all about what I read in 14. But you need to remember that this is written as one narrative. And so what we see at the end of 14 is Jesus is saying, now he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then right after that, we we learn who is hearing him. Now, if you didn't know anything about this story beforehand, I think we would all assume that the people who would hear Jesus, who would have ears to hear, would be religious people, the leaders. But who is it that we see at the very next sentence, who are the ones that have the ears to hear? It's the men and women of doubtful reputation, right? They're beginning to develop this trust for Jesus. It says that Jesus received them to himself. And in the the original Greek, what that meant, there were two primary meanings. One was to welcome favorably, and the other was uh, to look forward to or waiting for. So Jesus was welcoming these outcasts to himself. He had been waiting for them to develop a trust in him. He waited for them to overcome their suspicions of him. And then he embraced them eagerly, and he even socialized with them. I'll tell you, I'm so glad that Jesus does embrace sinners. Otherwise, I never would have had the opportunity to know Jesus. So what is it that makes heaven happy? We read in that parable that it says that, you know, there was much rejoicing for the shepherd. There's much rejoicing in heaven. What is it that causes that? Well, we tend to get all caught up in ourselves as humans, and we think that the things that we accomplish are great and worthy of being uh, having rejoicing. So I thought, well, I'll look uh, in the place that has the most authority, the Internet, and I came up with this list of great accomplishments of humankind. Uh, we have the beginning of democracy. Or perhaps it would be ocean voyages, being able to travel over the ocean. Or even better than that, how about flight? Or maybe it's the invention of vaccines. Or climbing Mount Everest. Or maybe it's putting a man on the moon. Or what I think is an even better accomplishment, bringing that man back alive. And we get all impressed with ourselves But I don't think heaven was up there being impressed. Do you you imagine the angels looking down going, Ooh, wow, look what they just did. Wow, yay, yay humans. (laughs) But we do see that Jesus said not once, not twice, but three times in these amazing stories in chapter 15 that heaven rejoices over someone returning to the Lord. And I think if it's that important to Jesus, it ought to be that important to his followers as well. This drama is built on the tension of trying to find something that's lost, something important. And we can all identify with that, right? We've all lost something important. We're like in the story I told, we've lost a child. And there's that tension that grows the longer this child is missing. And then when they're found the relief and the joy that you experience upon finding something or someone of great importance to you. Well, in this, this uh, story, 
there is a shepherd that has a hundred sheep. Now that's about average. Uh, we're told that there, the average flock in that time was somewhere between 20 and 200. So that gives us uh, this middle of the pack shepherd, middle, uh, just kind of getting along, not poor, not rich. And remember, these sheep are not 100 pets that he has. This is his income, his livelihood. He was able to sell the wool and sell the mutton, and that would provide for himself and for his family. Well, I've never owned a sheep. I've never known anybody that owned a sheep, so I was trying to think of something that would help me to understand this. And over the years, Cindy and I have had three basset hounds. It doesn't even look like she has a spine, does it? And while we were trying to decide what kind of a dog to have, Cindy did some research, and she found that Bassets are known for being very friendly and uh, being good with kids. And so that kind of attracted us to them. Uh, but they're also known for uh, being hunting dogs. You know, they, I was going to say they smell good, but they don't. They, they have a good sense of smell. And we had actually two dogs at this time. The other was a mutt. It was a, she was a, a mix of a Labrador Retriever and a Golden. And these two dogs were inseparable. And we didn't have kids at this point. So we would go to work. The dogs were in our fenced-in backyard. And the gate would not always latch all the way. And so they would nudge on it after we had left and go out exploring. So, of course, the first thing out of the... The gate, Maggie, the basset, has her nose down, and she's following a scent. And uh, Gretchen, uh, her friend, is just following. Ooh, let's go for a walk. (laughs) And after a while, Gretchen got tired of that and went back and sat on the front porch until we came home. You think the basset was there? Well, she looks up, and she has no idea where she is or how to get home. We had to go find her and rescue her. And, of course, once I found her, here's another thing about Bassets, is they're not the brightest animal. I kind of describe them as being one fry short of a Happy Meal. (laughs) And so I can't just snap my fingers and say, hey, come on, Maggie, let's go home. No, I had to go over and pick up that lunk of a dog and carry her back home. Not like over my shoulders, like the shepherd in our story. But that kind of helped me to understand a little bit more about sheep, since I don't understand sheep. Uh, but another thing about sheep is that they don't have any natural defense. And I won't say anything about the Bassets, but I did find this picture of sheep with their natural... Oh, again, that's from the Internet, so put whatever stock you want into that. But this imagery that we see of shepherd and sheep is not just a New Testament thing and, and uh, Jesus' stories, but in Isaiah chapter forty eleven. It says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. See, this recovery of the lost sheep leads to a shared joy. It's not something that's just for the shepherd, but he shares that with others. He calls his friends and his neighbors to celebrate the recovery of this one lost sheep. And I think that's a picture of God's heart for us. The attitude that's expressed here, I think, is fundamental to the importance of the mission of the church. 
We need to be so concerned about the lost that we're searching for them and that we're concerned and that we're excited when they come back to the Lord. You see, Jesus was constantly out among people, building relationships. Yes, even with the people of doubtful reputation. Matter of fact, that's who he spent most of his time with. And so when the uh, religious leaders would accuse him of spending his time with them, that was actually a compliment. He's saying, well, thank you for telling me that I'm doing what my heavenly father sent me to do. And that's what we should be doing as well. I think of people like Matthew and Zacchaeus, who not only were of doubtful reputation, they really were tax collectors. And Jesus spent time building that relationship with them and then drew them to the Father. Well, what modern-day men and women of doubtful reputation are you and I developing relationships with? Who are we befriending? Or do we kind of keep our distance because maybe we don't want to be associated with them or maybe we're concerned about our testimony and and how that will be affected? Maybe we need to just kind of think, who are these people today? Maybe it's a a liberal and outspoken co-worker that you have. Maybe it's a couple of neighbors that you have who are living together but aren't married. Maybe it's someone you know who's part of the LGBT community and is very open about it. Or maybe it's somebody's prodigal son or daughter. Well, based on this amazing story, should your attitude, should my attitude about them change the way that we act towards them or perhaps the distance that we keep between ourselves and them? This passage also says a lot about the heart of God in uh, engaging with those who are maybe not even interested in him. He cares enough for them to go looking for them and searching for them, even when they are trying to be away from him. I think we need to be like treasure hunters, only the treasure that we're seeking is lost people and not riches. And the search is not always easy. Even though the passage doesn't tell us how long the shepherd was gone, I mean, remember, this is a parable, right? We're not given all the details. I doubt that the shepherd went searching and turned the first corner and, oh, there's my sheep. I think it was more of a long search, maybe even dangerous. And yet he continued. As disciples of Jesus, we should be engaging the lost in meaningful relationships But how often do we do just the opposite? We withdraw from the lost multitudes for fear of compromising our testimony. And that's not going to work. I think it's ridiculous for us to wait for the lost to come searching for their rescuers. And it's going to require time and energy. Sometimes it's going to take years, maybe even decades of searching and praying. Now, I've shared a story with some of you about a man named George Mueller, and I'd like to share with all of you about that. He was uh, living in the 1800s. He was a Christian evangelist and the director of the Ashley Downs Orphanage in Bristol, England. And he cared for over 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. And he provided an education to the children under his care, actually to the point where he was accused of raising the poor above their natural station in life. Do you get that? That statement makes me sick to my stomach. 
He also established 117 schools, which offered a Christian education to over 120,000 children. He said in 1844 that he began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. He said he prayed every day without a single stop. Eighteen months passed before the very first one gave their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Five years after that of praying for the next one before they were converted. Six years after that before the third came to know the Lord. The last two did not come to know the Lord during his lifetime. But the story goes that the fourth one did during his funeral service and the fifth several months after that. During the last years of his life, a pastor friend of George Mueller's asked him how much time he spent praying for lost people. And he said, I've been praying every day for 52 years for two men, sons of a friend of my youth. Do you get that? They're not even relatives. They are not converted yet, but they will be. How could it be otherwise? In our culture today, with our fast-paced lifestyle, are we persistently pursuing relationships with people who need to know the Lord? I think our best opportunities often come from work relationships, from our neighbors, and from school, whether it's our own school or the school that our children attend. And yet even then, sometimes it's difficult because maybe you homeschool your kids or, or maybe, like myself, you work in a place where everybody claims to be a Christian. That's the second time I've thrown my coworkers under the bus today. <laughs> well, I heard of a family who was in that kind of a situation, and they decided that they were going to have a who-are-those-guys party. So they invited all of their neighbors over to their house for a cookout and for ice cream, and they started doing this periodically just to build into those relationships of people that the Lord had placed in their lives. I think that's a great way to apply this amazing story about searching for the lost. Well, the question that I always like to ask at the end is, so what? What difference does this make tomorrow morning? How does this change my attitude and how I think? I mean, if Jesus cares so much about lost people that he would leave everything to search out that one individual, then maybe I should care that much too. And if all of heaven rejoices over a person placing their faith and trust in Jesus, then maybe it should be that big of a deal to me as well. Well, how does it change my actions? Well, I can't tell lost people about Jesus if I have very little contact with men and women of questionable reputation. I need to evaluate my relationships and be intentional in those uh, friendships that I form spending more time with people who need to know God. And I also need to evaluate how diligent I am in praying for the lost. I mean, would I really be willing to pray 50 years for people that, in, at least in my own lifetime, I never saw know the Lord? Or would I, after 18 months, maybe 18 weeks, decide that they weren't going to come to know the Lord, so I'll just cross them off my list and start praying for somebody else? 
Father, please change our hearts. Help us to have the same attitude that you had. To seek out people who need to know you. To be intentional about it. To be ready to share the gospel. Father, make us praying people who pray with persistence, who don't give up after a while. Father, I pray that this church would see many come to know you because we have the same idea that you had. And Father, as the men are coming to take the offering, I pray that you will use our gifts that you would help us to be generous, hilarious givers. That you would take that money and you would use it far beyond what we ever imagined possible. Not for ourselves, but for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.